Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless Possible. with her as the princess of Genovia and then Andy Sachs. But the real woman behind those adored characters, she had to deal with an ugly phenomenon, the rise of Hatha hate. Welcome to Scandal from Shameless Podcast, the stories of the biggest celebrity controversies revisited. Michelle, welcome to our two-part series on Anne Hathaway and Hatha Hate. I love Anne Hathaway and it hurt to research this series, but that said, it's also one of the more enjoyable ones, I think. Like, you and I just found ourselves reading everything we could about this. Yeah, and I got weirdly excited to record Not because in any way I want to revel in the ugly, ugly things that went down on the internet at this time, but I think because it's a pretty fascinating story and I also think it's one we know that has a relatively happy ending because we know where Anne Hathaway is now, we know how much she's thriving, we know how much good work she's putting out into the world. But to go back and relive this was quite extraordinary. Quite an interesting experience and the reason we wanted to do this, the kind of catalyst for us deciding to do this Scandal series were those photos of Anne Hathaway at Cannes looking incredible and the resulting social media commentary. We posted one meme on our Instagram account that went wild. It read, I need Anne Hathaway to know that I loved her the whole time. Not once did I stray from loving her. My love for her never wavered. All these other wishy-washy bitches clock in and out, but I've been here on call for her. That is like... I think it really nails it for me because I'm a huge Anne Hathaway fan and I remember watching the Hath the Hate period in time and just being really confused. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, I always wondered, like, what was it that sparked the intensity of Hath the Hate? Like, how did she become one of the most despised stars in Hollywood? And I guess that's exactly why we decided to dive back into it. So let's rewind now, Mish, all the way back to 1982 to when Anne was born. <laughs> 
Zara, it was a good year, 1982, because that was when Anne Hathaway was born and she was, of course, raised in New Jersey with her two brothers. She later described her childhood as, and I quote, a solidly upper middle class family who had really strong values and excess was not one of the things that my family put up with. Yeah, at first, quite interestingly, Anne thought she wanted to be a nun. She was raised quite Catholic. Her whole family was quite Catholic for a time. And she explained, when I was younger, I thought about becoming a nun for a while. You know how it is when you're growing up and you're going to be a lot of different things. But I actually wanted to be an actress before I wanted to be a nun. The nun thing was more of a sidebar thing. Now, as a little aside... Her family actually did leave the Catholic Church later in life after her older brother Michael came out as gay and they realised that their values perhaps didn't align as much with the Catholic churches. Yeah, Anne's mother is actually stage actress Kate McCauley. She, along with Anne's father, who was a lawyer named Gerald Hathaway, really pushed Anne and encouraged her to pursue an acting career. It was actually through watching her mum perform in Les Mis as Fontaine that introduced her to the world of acting. Anne later described, I guess my mum is the one that taught me it was a possibility. For as long as I can remember, I've always played make-believe. It's something that I've always done that I've always been comfortable doing. Yeah, Anne won a high school drama prize and went on to become the first teen to be accepted by the award-winning Barrow Group Theatre School in New York. So she started auditioning, decided that this was what she wanted to do with her life and actually landed a role with the short-lived TV show called Get Real. Yeah, it was around that time as well that she actually landed a spot on a Disney film called The Other Side of Heaven. She was only 17 when this happened. This was going to be her film debut and she would need to travel to New Zealand for all of the shooting. Yeah, exactly. Now, a quick aside about this film, The Other Side of Heaven. (laughs) I mean, we just found this interesting. It's actually a Mormon film. So its protagonist is a man called John H. Groberg, arguably the leader in The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, in the film, Anne played John's girlfriend and then wife Jean. In reality, John and Jean actually have 11 children, but a pretty interesting film to really get your film debut. Yeah, 100%. So Mormon film aside, she was going to be doing a 26-hour layover in Los Angeles on her way to New Zealand. So while she was in LA, she decided, what the hell, I may as well send another audition tape for another Disney movie That movie, Zara, was called The Princess Diaries. Now, for anyone who doesn't know about this film, I think we'd be hard-pressed to find a single Mm. listener not familiar with The Princess Diaries, but it was a cult classic Disney movie that eventually premiered in 2001. It was about an awkward high schooler who meets her grandmother and finds out that she's actually the princess of a fake European country called Genovia. Yeah, just an absolutely classic premise. Now, a lot of established actresses were apparently being considered for the role of Mia Thermopolis. The studio also reportedly approached people like Kirsten Dunst, Alicia Silverstone, Jessica Biel and Claire Danes about the role. Of course, they also reached out to Anne Hathaway. Yeah, and they cast Anne Hathaway after a single audition. Looking back, Anne thinks the director was won over after she got nervous and accidentally fell off her chair in that audition, which if you've seen the film, that is very Mia Thermopolis of her. The director, Gary Marshall's granddaughters, apparently also saw the tapes of Anne auditioning and insisted their grandfather had to cast her, claiming she had the best, and I quote, princess hair. (laughs) Yeah, so Anne was cast opposite the legendary actress Julie Andrews. It was Anne's first film and a huge jump for her as someone who'd actually trained as a theatre actress like her mum, 
Anne later said, you put me on stage in front of 2,000 people, I know what to do. You put me in front of a camera and I'm like, ugh. Although I'm still terrified of it and freely admit that I am, I've kind of grown to love it and it is its own art form. It's a lot harder, I think, than people realise. I am just starting to understand it better. I was thrust into a really lofty, enviable, but isolated position with Princess Diaries in that I could carry a film before I really knew if I could act. It's an interesting quote, that one, that sense that she knew very early that she could carry this entire film. Didn't even know she was very good at the craft yet. Yeah, well, she's so young. Like, we need to remember, she took her first ever semester off college to film this movie. Like, this was all happening to her before she'd had really a chance to get her head around who she even was. And it was a massive film. It made $165 million at the box office. The critics were massive fans as well. The New York Times wrote that Anne, who turned 19 the year that this movie came out, is royalty in the making, a young comic talent with a scramble of features, a lovably broad Grecian nose, a cloud of curly hair and charisma that recalls Julia Roberts. The camera is mad about her. I definitely see the Julia Roberts comparison with the big toothy smile and the warm face. Like the bright eyes. Yeah. Anne was named one of People Magazine's breakthrough stars of 2001 and one of Teen People Magazine's hottest stars under 25. Now, Disney very interestingly actually postponed the release of her other movie, The Mormon One, The Other Side of Heaven, when they realised how big of a success The Princess Diaries was going to be and that even though Anne had been catapulted into teen stardom, The Other Side of Heaven really flopped at the box office after The Princess Diaries came out. It only generated about $4 million. Thank God for her that they made that decision. I mean, maybe The Princess Diaries would have soared anyway, but clearly that other film was not all that strong. Now, after the success of The Princess Diaries, Anne Hathaway went back to juggling college with acting. At the start of 2002, she made her musical stage debut in New York with a production of Carnival. And then she starred in the film Nicholas Nickleby that same year. So like an incredible ascension to fame very, very quickly. Yeah, and she was still juggling college as she did all this. She decided that she didn't want to fully drop out. And it's at this point in the story that we want to talk about her dating life, her personal life, because this was a very important time in her life. In 2003, Anne met Italian property developer Raffaello Folieri through mutual friends at dinner. Yeah, Raffaello had actually moved to New York that year at the age of 25. So Anne was about to turn 20 he was four years her senior and according to Anne this was totally love at first sight apparently he was an hour late to their first date she was furious but he made up for it by sending her a dozen roses (laughs) yeah in an interview Anne said that he was and I quote so good looking (laughs) he looks like a god at this point we should recap Anne was a sophomore at Vassar University she was majoring in English but shortly after meeting Raffaello she transferred to NYU. She was, of course, still acting and being quite prolific about it at the end of 2003. Her film, The Princess Diaries 2, came out and at the start of 2004, she starred in the fantasy film Ella Enchanted. don't know if we have time, but I didn't love The Princess Diaries 2. Princess Diaries 1 was a 10 out of 10 film. Princess Diaries 2, forgettable. Definitely forgettable, but I do think 
one of the more iconic scenes from the Princess Diaries franchise happened in the second movie when they had that big slumber party and they were going yes. down the stairs in mattresses. Do you remember oh that? Oh, my God, yes. I always wanted to do that but never really had the means of doing so. I remember me and my sisters, we were living in a house with stairs at the time and we tried to recreate it with not a heap of success. But you're right, plenty of iconic scenes out of the Princess Diaries, full stop. Yeah, for sure. Now, after those films came out, Anne was really trying to transition into more adult roles too. So she was kind of growing tired of the really hyper-commercialized rom-com teenage movie that she had had a lot of success in. That became pretty clear when she sat down with The Independent and gave this quote, I don't mean to roll my eyes and be an ungrateful little bitch. It's just that if I get asked one more time, if you were a princess, what would you do? I'm not a princess. I played one three years ago and all of a sudden I get every single cheese princess question. Interesting quote. I think perhaps it may have sounded worse because this was a written interview. I would have loved to hear her tone or maybe playfulness in a video. Absolutely. And she had played a princess three times by this point. Like she was... She was the world's princess. Like, and she did lean into that. Well, she was great at it. As The Independent put it, at the age of 21, Anne found herself, and I quote, simultaneously at the peak of her genre and at a curious crossroads in her career. I mean, on the one hand, as we've said, she was making bank, mm. you know, and earning a really strong reputation in these successful princess movies, but she had grown out of the roles. She told the paper, I've done a lot of characters, given a few film experiences now that people can treasure as really fun family entertainment, but that's not why I became an actor and that's not where I intend to stay. So she had an operation. It was to become a more serious artsy actor. And to do that, she starred in a small budget film called Havoc, where she played a rich LA brat who engaged in slum tourism, formed a gang and was drawn into the dark world. The Independent noted that it actually included a topless scene for Anne and that, and I quote, no doubt her bosses at Disney will be glad that Havoc has yet to find a distributor. That following year, Anne actually appeared in the cult classic Brokeback Mountain playing the wife to Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah, but her career, as we know, changed a few years later when she starred in the hit film The Devil Wears Prada. I mean, I knew that Anne did all these roles, Mm. but I think when you put them all back to back, you're like, yeah, wow, she was in a heap of films that I loved. And like highbrow and lowbrow films. Like we've got The Brokeback Mountain, we've got The Princess Diaries, we've got The Devil Wears Prada, which in my opinion sits somewhere in the middle. I actually rewatched this a couple of weeks ago when we decided to do this Anne Hathaway series and it has to be, if not my favourite film of all time, 100% up there. Like this film is so glorious to watch. The character of Miranda Priestley, which is of course played by Meryl Streep, is epic. Anne Hathaway is epic. Emily Blunt is epic. It is just magic Stanley to watch. Tucci. Oh, Sta- like it is such a fucking good film. And even the sequences, you know, when she's like all the different outfits while she's walking to work and she changes oh, every time yeah. a car goes past. It's just 10 out of 10 chef's kiss best film ever. I haven't seen it, I reckon, in about 10 years. All right, you have to I have reckon to I'd love it. to watch it again. The film came out in 2006, the year that Anne turned 24. And even though she was a really established actress at this point, 
W Magazine later described this film as her breakout movie. And that's got to be true, right? Like she was properly cementing herself. The film was fundamental for Anne in many ways. The New Yorker said that even though the film never went, and I quote, much below the surface of what it has to tell, still what a surface. (laughs) I am absolutely obsessed with that quote because that can apply to so much of what we do at Shameless. It's like, look, it doesn't go beyond the surface, but what a fucking surface. What a beautiful surface. The magazine also praised Anne's performance, saying that she suggests with no more than a panicky sidelong glance what Weisberger, the author who wrote the book, takes pages to describe. Yeah, Anne also earned respect within the industry for her work. During the filming of The Devil Wears Prada, director David Frankel says he was astounded by her seriousness and sensitivity, but he also noted that those traits had limitations. He said, Annie throws herself so deeply into things that sometimes you have to pull her back out. I remember a big scene we almost couldn't shoot because Annie had such commitment to identifying with the anxiety of the character that she made herself ill. Yeah. Anne also spoke about how working with Meryl Streep really helped shape her as an actress. She told the Today Show, it's not that Meryl just gets inside the character. She's just absolutely at the centre of all of her choices, of the truth of the character. And as an artist, that's what you dream of. Nothing can push her off that. The weather won't affect her or silly things like someone's cell phone going off. It won't make her lose focus in her character. And to be around that, to have been brought into that during our scenes, it just felt like I was shaving years off my discovery as an actress to realise, okay, that's what this feels like. Now I just have to get there myself. Dare I say, this is kind of the cliff edge where Anne Hathaway's reputation started to be shredded by the public. Not because I think she's at fault. I think she's making a lot of sense with those quotes. I think the quote you just read out from director David Frankel also makes a lot of sense. She's clearly an actor who really engrosses herself in her roles and takes her craft really seriously. I think the issue is the public doesn't take women or actresses who play roles in rom-coms or female films as seriously and so there was a bit of a disconnect here between what she was saying in interviews and how we perceived her in the public eye. Yeah well I think this is where we maybe started to catch glimpses of early Hatha hate or perhaps the kind of comments and behaviour that maybe got Anne into a bit of trouble at a later time. I think generally early on there was a sense that she did take herself pretty seriously. Which Too is seriously there's, yeah. There's no crime in that. No. I just you're right I think when She was playing roles that are our light entertainment and she's coming out saying she wants to be the next Oscar winner, which, spoiler alert, she was. Yeah. We didn't like it. In 2006, New York Magazine actually did a profile of Anne Hathaway and the profile really focused on her good girl image and how she gave the media nothing to work with, nothing sort of edgy, no Mm. negativity. I mean, the title of the piece itself was The Very Good Girl. Yeah, she in that piece talked about how in the industry, and I quote, there's a lot of pressure to point out the shocking and sordid details of your personal life. If that's your goal, good for you. And just because someone likes to go out a lot, I don't think that's revealing of a deeper truth for anyone. Yeah, she added that there are other ways to get out there. I think what's so interesting interesting about reading this piece is the journal and Anne both made really good points in that 
to be famous, you don't want to overshare, but you certainly need to reveal tiny parts of yourself mm. that are relatively likable. And I think the audience wanted to hear from Anne that she loved to go out and party or she loved to do other kind of edgy things, but she didn't give them anything and they couldn't write about that about her. Do you think those edgy things are what makes a movie star relatable or like gives us a reference point to go, oh, well, they're not as perfect as they put out. When someone goes, no, no, I really just like my craft. I'm very good at it. I don't have any messy aspects to my personality. We go, you're too perfect. We don't believe you. Yeah, absolutely. I think very much she was like, I'm coming here to do my job and then leaving. Off, yeah. Like you don't need to know anything else. <laughs> but as New York Magazine said, and I quote, in this overheated atmosphere, it's tough to be smart and talented and relatively sober without coming off as something of a prig. Uh, and hold the publication. The last thing I'd want to do is present myself as a kind of classic, shiny, white-toothed girl. But as the journal wrote, the only problem is Anne Hathaway fits that bill pretty well. Yeah, Anne ended the interview by saying, if you don't think I have a deep, dark past, then I've done my job well, suggesting, of course, that the image she was putting out to the world was every bit deliberate. Mm. Like, I don't think for mine, when I was reading through this stuff, it was at all inauthentic. I do think she was like a relatively sober person yeah. both literally and metaphorically and she had no desire to share beyond that she also didn't have to but this is where it all started falling apart you know what she had boundaries which is yeah. your favorite thing which might be why you fucking love her <laughs> so very much guys after this ad break we need to talk about one of the biggest scandals that rocked Anne hathaway's career but first a word from today's sponsor Alrighty, Mish, in 2008, Anne Hathaway faced her very first huge scandal. Huge. Her boyfriend of four years, whom she had just broken up with, and we say just, just, meaning days, was arrested and charged with fraud. Yeah. Let's rewind and explain what happened because, oh my goodness, this is such a roller coaster. So you might remember the name Raffaello. He is Anne Hathaway's long-term boyfriend. Well, it turns out that soon after arriving in New York, he started something called the Folleri Group. It was a company that had the goal to purchase properties from the Catholic Church. Now, this was an interesting goal because the Catholic Church was going through financial fallout from their many child sex abuse scandals, making, I don't know, the ability to buy property kind of lucrative because they needed cash. Yeah, exactly. Now, Raffaello got people to invest in his company by falsely claiming that he had a close personal connection to the Vatican that allowed him to buy church properties at below market rates. I mean, this guy's just come over from Italy and told everyone in America that he knows everyone <laughs> in the Catholic Church. And people bought it. According to The Cut, he really ran with this image. He installed an altar in his office, had a nun as his receptionist and kept ceremonial robes in his office. Yeah, and by doing this, he caught the attention of some really influential people. He scored meetings with people like the former president, Bill Clinton, Clinton and Carlos Slim, the richest man in the world at the time. In 2006, Bill Clinton even invited Raffaello on stage at the Clinton Global Initiative Gathering to thank him for a pledged $50 million donation. 
Spoiler alert, that $50 million donation never materialised. Yeah, Raffaello was also introduced to this guy called Ron Burkle. Now, Ron was a key fundraiser and a pretty close friend of Bill Clinton. And Bill Clinton had actually invested in in Ron Burkle's private investment firm. So this guy, Ron Burkle, is a pretty big deal. He had committed $105 million (laughs) to fund a joint venture with Raffaello. So he's getting... Buckets of money, heaps of money from, from super famous people, really well connected people. Yeah, but in reality, Raffaello was racking up huge debts and using investor money to fund his lavish lifestyle. He hired an elite dog walking surface <laughs> for his brown Labrador. He hired a private jet for a hundred and seven grand to take him and Anne Hathaway to a New Year's Eve party at Oscar de la Renta's mansion in the Dominican Republic. He spent thirty thousand dollars to fly his personal doctor to London for a minor ailment. He rented a yacht with six crew for him and Anne in the Mediterranean. This is all to say he lived the high life off of a scam. Yeah, he rented an apartment in the Olympic Tower as well for $37,000 a month that he apparently justified as a place where visiting Vatican dignitaries would stay. But he also actually used it as his private residence. I mean, it was reportedly incredibly lavish. According to an article in Vanity Fair, a butler opened the door, there were floor-to-ceiling views of St. Patrick's and white marble floors. Yeah, this fantasy started to unravel for Raffaello in 2007, though. In April 2007, Ron Burkle, yes, that very close friend, of Clinton's filed a lawsuit against Raffaello for misappropriating funds. Now, despite this, despite this lawsuit being known, Anne and Raffaello stayed together. Three months after that, in June 2007, an interview came out in Harper's Bazaar in which Anne really gushed about him. She said, the last two projects I did, I was working six-day weeks, and they shot in Ireland and Vancouver, respectively. So Raffaello travelled out almost every weekend to be with me. Yeah, Harper's Bazaar also wrote about all the charity work that Anne and Raffaello did together. They wrote about how Raffaello had set up the Folieri Foundation and travelled with them to Nicaragua the year before to inoculate children against Hep A. She and Raffaello were also planning a trip to Honduras with the ultimate goal of vaccinating every child under five in that country. She told the magazine, My boyfriend is incredible in a lot of ways, but when it comes to his charity, one of the most untouted aphrodisiacs in the world is charity work. Seriously, you want a girl to be impressed? Vaccinate some kids, build a house. I mean, an offbeat quote, I'm going to say. It's, yeah, it's not her finest quote. And it's also pretty jarring to read all of this stuff when we know that he was running a scam and none of it seemed as it was. But even beyond that, it's a bit white saviory to be like, oh, yeah. good for you that that's your aphrodisiac. That you- Vaccinate some kids. Yeah, it's a bit off. But... I think the other thing that I found really interesting about this is when I was going back through this timeline, I'm like, why would she give such stupidly candid quotes about her relationship, painting her partner like an absolute angel so soon after former business associates began proceedings to sue him? And I guess on the one hand, you could argue maybe the interview was done before he was sued, but on the other, you could say, well, she didn't dump him after he was sued. So maybe she still did think the world of him and maybe she did think that he was being unfairly targeted. Regardless, no celebrity has to speak about their partner. No. And she did. 
Yeah, and, and it, she had a history of being quite private about it as well. So it just didn't bode well when everything ended up coming out. Yeah. Look, Raffaello did settle the lawsuit with Burkle, but the problems just kept coming. He was later sued for failing to pay a public relations firm a quarter of a million dollars. In April 2008, police also hunted him down after a $215,000 check bounced to a different business. When they found him, Raffaello had just $39.08 in his bank account. Zara, that takes us to June 2008, where shit well and truly went down. Absolutely. So in June 2008, Anne Hathaway reportedly broke up with Raffaello. Ten days later, he was arrested by the FBI for fraud. Now, the FBI dragged him out of the Trump Tower penthouse he'd bought for his parents, where he had been staying since he lost the lease to his own place. He was put in jail with a $21 million bail. Yeah, and all of this raises the question... How much did Anne Hathaway know? Like, is there a world where she simply didn't see the signs, where love really was blind and she ignored the fact he was being sued by a major investor and a contractor? But then we know she did break up with him a week and three days before he was arrested by the FBI. Of course, a woman is never responsible for the criminal behaviour or the misdemeanours of her male partner. But did she know what was going on? Did she have a suspicion that he was, I don't know, scamming heaps of people out of tens of millions of dollars? Yeah, well, one outlet reported that Anne had allegedly provided information about her boyfriend to the FBI that led to his arrest. A friend speculated to the New York Daily News, it makes sense. Hathaway is referred to as his former girlfriend in the FBI indictment, even though her spokesperson never confirmed they broke up. I do want to put on the record there, Anne has never confirmed that story to be true. That is absolutely just a rumour. Speculation. Yeah. Yeah. And look, if Raffaello was so effective at lying to massive politicians, really well-connected people for five years, there is absolutely a world where you can also tell those same lies and be equally convincing for five years to your romantic partner. As New York Magazine wrote, the audacity of Raffaello's scheme, the swagger and self-confidence it takes to con the billionaire boys club for years, the ability to carry on for another year while you're slowly getting busted and to keep your movie star girlfriend from dumping you until the very last minute, it was actually kind of exceptional. Which says a lot to the idea that perhaps he was just incredibly charming in his ability to lie to everyone. People speculated that he wouldn't have taken such big risks if he wasn't attached to Anne, a source told Vanity Fair. Looking back, I think it was all done to impress Anne, which is also a weird take. I don't like that take. It feels a bit randomly victim-blamey somehow. Well, it feels like, oh, well, you're the big movie star. He did this because of you. If you weren't around, he wouldn't have done it so badly. Yeah, yeah, you're at fault (laughs) for him swindling all these people out of money. Now... Anne was forced to hand over thousands of dollars worth of jewellery that he'd given her and authorities seized her private journals as part of the investigation. But to be really clear, she has never been prosecuted or charged with anything at all. Yeah. Around the same time that all of this shit is going on in her personal life, Anne's career is still going from strength to strength. She starred in the film Rachel Getting Married, along with another film called Passengers. She was also in the process of doing press for her new film, Get 
Get Smart. She was also set to make her debut as the face of Longcom's new fragrance, Magnifique, and a comedy film called Bride Wars that was going to come out the following year. She was a busy, busy girl, which is perhaps how she didn't realise that Raffaella was doing all this shit. She was busy. Yeah, for sure. And in an interview with W Magazine, Less than a month after her highly publicised breakup and less than three weeks after Raffaello was arrested for allegedly scamming his investors. Now, of course, you can imagine the press had been having a field day. There were headlines like The Princess and the Con Man. Newsweek titled its report, What should have tipped Anne Hathaway that her ex-boyfriend was big trouble? A. Crooked dad. B. Bad checks. C. Alleged Pope scam. D. All of the above. Brutal. Even Donald Trump weighed in on this mess. Of course. He said, she, as in Hathaway, hasn't remained very loyal to him, has she? So when he had plenty of money, she liked him. But then after that, not as good, right? (laughs) What a weird fucking take, Donald. I know you have a lot of weird takes, but that's got to be up there. No, it's so, it's (laughs) such a Donald take. It's quite exceptional, really. Now, despite all of what was going on, she still decided to do the interview with W Magazine. Now, the journalist said that while she tried to put on a good front, she was looking worse for wear. They wrote, All the cheerful banter in the world could not obscure Hathaway's tired eyes and drawn face, which she has not attempted to mask with makeup. Her hair is pulled back and her figure, which for several weeks has appeared on the big screen and Get Smart in all its solid, curvaceous glory, is now more slender than ever, resembling something closer to a ballerina's form than that of an ass-kicking secret agent. When the journalist said she was surprised that Anne showed up for the interview, she said... As soon as I found out about the arrest, I had to get on a plane to Mexico to do a press tour for Get Smart. And then I spent a week in shock at a friend's house. And then I had to go back and do more press. And I haven't stopped since. A bit in that whole passage. Never a fan of people commenting on women's bodies, no matter the circumstances. Yeah. Look, I'm in two minds. I completely agree with you. I don't think we should be policing a woman's body that way. Does this elicit sympathy for Anne, though, to be like, she is racked with stress? I think it's a very human thing to go through something very, very stressful and for your eating, no matter how it changes, for it to change in that time of profound stress. So I can kind of see why the journalist did it. Do I think it's justified? I'm not sure. I don't think so because I think there are many ways you can tell the story of someone being absolutely and utterly exhausted without saying that. This was 10 years ago, so I think it's probably of that time, right? So while Anne didn't speak to the specifics of the scandal or what she did or didn't know when it came to Raffaello's scam, she did speak about the impact it had on her. After moving out of their apartment, she moved into a friend's place and she told the magazine, I have to find a place to live. At this point, the journalist commented that as she said it, Anne's voice catches with emotion and pulls form at the corners of her eyes as she struggles to articulate her messy mix of feelings. Yeah, this is a quote from Anne's in the piece. It's a situation where the rug was pulled from underneath me all of a sudden, but just as suddenly my friends threw another rug back under me. One said, go stay at my house. And Steve Carell, her Get Smart co-star, stepped up for me during an interview when someone asked a question about it. He said to me, at some point, you're going to have to talk about this time in your life. You do not have to do it this week. I will take care of anything that comes your way. I love him. Steve Carell. I fucking love him. (laughs) He's never going to be in a scandal episode. I'm just putting it out there. He just seems like such a stand-up guy. Annabelle, I don't think, has... uh, 
seen this episode yet, but as she's editing it. She'll be smiling. <laughs> excuse us, say that quote, she'll love it. Now, Raffaello Foldieri was jailed on fraud and money laundering charges. He ended up spending four and a half years in jail before being deported to Italy where he now lives. If anything, Anne was eventually praised for how she handled this time in her life. The Daily Beast, reflecting on her image during this time, wrote that, and I quote, putting on a brave face and dutifully hitting the publicity circuit to promote her stunning turn in Rachel getting married, public perception was that Hathaway was tough and strong and a bit of a badass. Reminds me a bit of the Hugh Grant scandal episodes that we have respect for people who show up in times when they're struggling. For sure. It's just that we also have really short memories too. Because <laughs> interesting what I also found fascinating about this W Magazine profile, the one that Anne did so soon after Raffaella was arrested, is that this piece also revealed that Anne was not always the easiest person to work with during those early years. Like she freely admitted this. This wasn't really coming from anywhere else but Anne's own admission. She said throughout her career up until this point, she hadn't always carried her ambition with grace. Mm. In the interview, Anne said that when she was 17 and was making The Princess Diaries, her director, Gary Marshall, and I quote, made me feel like I was the most important person on set every day. And from there, sometimes when I would talk to adults, they would be taken aback by how forward I was and I was very oblivious to it. Yeah, looking back on that time when she was involved with The Princess Diaries franchise, she remarked, I was not the most fun girl to be around. It was a very young moment for me. God love the patient, wonderful Gary Marshall. Gary himself spoke to W Magazine for this profile and said, Anne was great in the first movie when she didn't know much of anything. But in the second movie, she was an expert. That often happens. She wanted to lay something different by then. She didn't want to keep the tiara on. I remember at a junket, she was talking about Nietzsche and Schopenhauer. And Disney was getting nervous. And I said, Annie, why don't you talk about your hair a little? We'll talk about Nietzsche later. But that's why I love Annie. When you look in her eyes, somebody's always home, which is rare. What? I. <laughs> so, so what? The director's saying... By the second film, she's now in her early 20s. She wants to go to these press junkets and talk about highbrow things like philosophers mm. and like theory yeah. instead of talking about her hair and being a princess. I get how for Disney they're like, can we just do the commercial thing? I do see both sides. I see both sides here too. I can see how Anne's like, fuck it. I'm a young woman. I can talk about more than my hair. Yes. But on the other hand, it's like, oh, you're under contract to do something very specific in this yep. press junket, and that is to sell everybody on a movie that you're acting in, that you're earning a heap of money on. And dare I say, when you're in your early 20s, that was when I was probably at my most annoying feminist self. Yeah. Like I was, I was determined to prove that I had a brain to kind of rally against what I had felt for so long as a teen girl. So it's very relatable. Anne just had to do that in the public eye instead of me doing it in my uni tutorials. Yeah, exactly. Anne actually said she did a heap of growing up on the film Rachel Getting Married. She said that the director, Jonathan Dem, at one point made a change to the script. This is what she said of that interaction. And I said, Jonathan, why did you change this? It was better the other way. And here's A, B, C, D, E, F, G, Y. And he smiled at me and said, hey, Annie, maybe instead of telling me why I'm wrong, you could ask me why I made the choice I made. 
I instantly felt so ashamed, she says. I didn't mean to be disrespectful to people, but that's exactly what I'd done for years. Mm, Over the next few years, Anne did seem to really grow up. In 2008, she met the producer Adam Shulman at a Palm Springs film festival, and she later explained that they didn't start dating right away. She said, I was told Adam had a girlfriend and I backed off because I'm not that girl. Then when I found out six weeks later that he didn't have a girlfriend, I was like, we should throw a party and we should invite Adam. And the rest is history. From the very first second, we knew it was a powerful and exciting connection we had. And it just gets better. I mean, she's still with him today. Yeah. So clearly. I love Hollywood relationships that last. Me too. Now, it was in that same year that she'd broken things off with Raffaello. And Anne later said that she admitted she couldn't have met him at a worse time. But as she later said... I took my trust out for a ridiculous joyride with him and he has never hurt me, which was quite sweet because she would have been incredibly vulnerable and would have felt like she didn't really know the guy that she was with before that for four years. Career-wise, Anne was nominated for an Oscar for Best Actress in Rachel Getting Married. She went on to star in movies like Valentine's Day, Alice in Wonderland and Love and Other Drugs. Yeah, but we started to see this interesting trend emerge for Anne as her career continued to go up and up and up. Public perception of her tended to go down and down and down. Let's fast forward to the year that it really took a turn for the worst. Zara. It was 2011. So Anne was turning 30 years old and she started the year off by hosting the Oscars. Yeah, it should have been a career defining moment in like all the right ways, but it was a pretty big shambles. I mean, Stylist UK magazine pinpointed this night as Anne's first public misstep. So she was hosting with, or co-hosting, I should say, with James Franco. Now, producers and writers on the show revealed that Anne had really thrown herself into the production. Yeah, here's what writer Jordan Rubin told the publication. Anne made herself readily available. I went to her house and worked on the script and she was on a bunch of conference calls and responding to emails and was a great collaborator. On the other hand, James Franco was the opposite. He was taking classes at Yale and was very distant from the entire process. That same writer, Jordan, recalled, James always seemed to be on a flight and it was very hard for me to get a hold of him. That was a red flag. It's like two people working on a uni project together. One is that like A-grade student who's going to do all the work. The other is impossible to even get a reply from. These two seem worlds apart. So far apart. James Franco. Like you look back on that casting and you're like, how was that ever going to work? You've got a guy whose whole brand is being too cool. Not giving a fuck. And you've got a woman whose whole brand is the complete opposite. Now, during rehearsals, Jordan said that Anne showed up and was ready to play and committed 110% while Franco was, and I quote, a great guy but often looked like he had just woken up from a nap. It's almost like you're showing up to a tennis court and one person decided they're going to play in the US Open and the other wanted to play in jeans and just kind of hit a few balls. Yeah. So despite Anne Hathaway singing, dancing and changing into eight different outfits that night, critics tore the hosting of the Oscars to shreds. Tim Goodman wrote in The Hollywood Reporter, in what could go down as one of the worst Oscar telecasts in history, a bad and risky idea, letting two actors host, played out in spectacularly unwatchable fashion on the biggest nights of all nights for the film world. LA Weekly said it was the most embarrassing Academy Awards ever. <sighs> and E! Online wrote that the worst moment of the Oscars opening night was, and I quote, realising that James Franco and Anne Hathaway actually were going to keep hosting through the whole thing and it wasn't all an inception <laughs> 
dream. It is hard to watch. We did watch a couple of clips on YouTube. It is difficult to watch. There is no doubt about that. Their energy is so misaligned, completely misaligned. James Franco, as I said, does seem completely too cool for the whole process. And comedic timing is like a tiny bit offbeat. Yeah. Like it's it's not – it's clunky. It's not there. And I I do find it really interesting though. When I was going back to watch a lot of the clips from this hosting gig, I did find it fascinating that the top comment on the official YouTube video of their opening monologue was this and it was liked 1,300 times. Anne was absolutely 100% perfect in every way. Her style fits the celebratory atmosphere. She was a trooper for staying upbeat and calm while trying to salvage one of the most dreaded situations an actor could be in, acting with a log. (laughs) A guy who gave her less than zero. Blaming her for this is absolutely ridiculous. I agree with that. It's like Anne wasn't perfect, but boy, she threw herself into it. Yeah, she absolutely did. And regardless of that even being the sentiment now, at the time, people blamed her, if not equally, even more than James Franco. Of course they blamed her more because she looked like she cared more. Yeah. It's harder to offend someone who doesn't look like they would give a fuck, which is James Franco. The stakes are higher because you could tell Anne was invested. Exactly. So... The Oscar thing happened. It wasn't so good. But a lot of other pretty good things happened to Anne that year. She starred as Catwoman in The Dark Knight Rises, earning critical acclaim. The Washington Post wrote, Hathaway is the sensational secret weapon of this production, a tart, leggy operator (laughs) who can turn on a dime from damsel in distress to canny kitten with a whip. Kitten with a whip. She also quietly married her partner Adam in front of 180 guests in Big Sur, California. The event was so secret that not even their guests knew where the wedding was being held. They all had to wear bracelets and board shuttles to be taken to the location. And Zara, if that was not enough, at the end of 2011, Anne starred in Les Mis and earned an Oscar nom for that performance. Yeah, but the press around Les Mis didn't go that smoothly for Anne. Rather than talk about her performance, so many journalists just wanted to talk about the fact that she had lost weight and shaved her head to play Fontaine. Anne, to her credit, answered these questions pretty well. When reporters asked her about the weight she had to lose to play the character, she acknowledged it was, and I quote, an unhealthy amount of weight. And she also refused to discuss how she did it, not wanting to contribute to toxic diet culture. She also said she didn't want to talk about it publicly because I damaged my health during Les Mis, which I didn't want to mention in case it seemed like I was courting sympathy. One of the weirdest parts of this scandal is she copped flack from so many people for being sad or kind of being careful with what she said about her weight. So many people came out and said, get over it. People lose weight for movies all the time. Just tell us the answer, which would be worlds apart from how we would handle this today. She was ahead of her time when it came to toxic diet culture. In addition, though, to those diet questions and the backlash from her responses, there was a really unfortunate and violating photo of Anne that was taken at the premiere of the movie. A photographer took a photo up her skirt as she got out of the car. She wasn't wearing any under meaning that the photographer got a photo of her crotch. As if that wasn't awful and violating enough, Anne then was a guest on the Today Show and was interviewed by none other than Matt Lauer, who decided he really wanted to discuss that photo with her. Now, just a little recap, Matt has since been fired from NBC for inappropriate sexual conduct in the workplace. Shocking. Back then, he was the host and one of the most recognisable faces on commercial TV. And he immediately brought this photo up in his interview with Anne. He literally kicked off the interview by saying, nice to see you. 
seen a lot of you lately. Oh, I fucking hate that. I, it's so bad. Anne tried to play it off, but then he kept talking to her about, and I quote, her little wardrobe malfunction, asking, what's the lesson learned from something like that? Other than that, you keep smiling, which you always do. As Vox noted, Anne's response was remarkably graceful. She told Matt, it was obviously an unfortunate incident. It kind of made me sad on two accounts. One was that I was really sad that we live in an age where someone takes a picture of another person in a vulnerable moment and rather than delete it and do the decent thing, sells it. And I'm sorry that we live in a culture that commodifies sexuality of unwilling participants, which brings us back to Les Mis. I love that response. Matt Lauer did not love it, though. He said that her response was, and I quote, one of the most creative turns of a question I've ever heard. It's not like she's having to fend gotcha questions and she's trying to, like, not answer the question. You're trying to put someone who's been violated on the spot and she's just trying to get you back to talking about a movie. Yeah, and you would think that this is where her popularity would spike. If someone handled this situation today the way that Anne Hathaway handled Matt Lauer, they would be held up as a feminist icon, Twitter would fucking lap it up, Instagram would lap it up, TikTok would lap it up. We would go crazy for this. That is not what happened in 2011 and 2012. People started to criticise her more online than ever. At the end of 2012, BuzzFeed wrote a listicle rounding up all the reasons people hate Anne Hathaway. The tagline for that BuzzFeed article read, Her career may be on the rise, but public opinion of Anne Hathaway is at an all-time low. The reasons they included that people hated her were her face, the fact she'd apparently ruined The Dark Knight Rises, Ella Enchanted and everything, because she thinks she's cool, because she's too perfect and because ultimately there's no real reason. I want to take a moment to talk about listicles like this and how deeply unhelpful and toxic they are because even though journos at BuzzFeed and editors at BuzzFeed would hide behind the fact, well, we're just repurposing what other people are saying. It's like, no, you're collating that and putting it out to an audience and reminding them why they should hate a woman when you've openly acknowledged there's no real reason to. Yeah. And you're also giving those tweets, which were often quite small and didn't have a whole lot of traction, a huge platform. BuzzFeed at this time was at its like absolute pinnacle. And credibility, right? It's like, oh, we believe you. We're backing you. Yeah. Backing you so much that we're going to publish it and put it in a list that justifies every point made. So when Anne eventually won the Golden Globe and a slew of other awards for her performance in Les Mis, the hate spread like wildfire. People began to criticise her smile, her apparent inauthenticity and her aura as an annoying drama school kid. People absolutely hated her. And that Zara, the rise of Hatha Hate, is what we're going to talk about and unpack on the next episode of Scandal. Yeah, absolutely. Because truthfully, this BuzzFeed article is only the tip, tip, tip of the iceberg. Everything's about to completely explode. But as you say, that's for next episode. We want to thank Justine Landers-Hanley, our researcher, who did such incredible work on this one. If you want a delicious throwback gallery of Anne Hathaway and all of the movies that defined your teenage years, please come follow us on Instagram. We are at Shameless Podcast. We'll also chuck some stuff up on our TikTok at Shameless underscore podcast. Yeah, thanks so much, guys. We'll be back in your ears on Thursday. Bye. Shameless Media.
This podcast was recorded on Wurundjeri land. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land.